Hello, and welcome to this podcast installment of Disciples. Disciples is the leading faith formation program for young adults in the Archdiocese of St. Louis. St. Louis Young Adults, in collaboration with the Paul VI Institute, is pleased to bring you these short, intellectually stimulating courses. Disciples courses, taught by an expert, offer a deeper look into topics that will help you understand and practice your faith more fully. We hope you enjoy this edition of the Disciples Podcast. Thank you for helping us build a home for Catholic young adults in St. Louis. The question came up last week about this early church history, and it didn't, it, we didn't see a lot of papacy involved in it, in Peter. And so I wanted to uh, go back over that a little bit and uh, talk a little bit about that before we get into uh, Irenaeus of Lyon. So the first handout talks about what's called the equation of Christian leadership. And so if we start looking at the leadership in the early church, we combine together two different things, and one of which is the importance of the founding apostle. Uh, some apostles are more important than other apostles. And then secondly, the importance of the Roman city. And we add those two together, then that's how we end up with the importance of a, and I have the, the word diocese in, um, in quotation marks, because that word is not going to be used until the 300s. And it's actually a secular term. It was um, invented by the Emperor Diocletian. Um, in the early church, they would have referred to themselves as being the, uh, the local church rather than the diocese. And so if we take a look at this, examples, if you take St. Mark, he's important. Now, he is not a, uh, an apostle as such. He's actually the, uh, uh, the um, um, secretary uh, to an apostle, Peter, or uh, rather, yeah, Peter. And uh, <clears throat> notice that after the martyrdom of St. Peter, he leaves Rome and goes down to Alexandria. Alexandria is one of the three most important cities in the Roman Empire. Rome is number one, Antioch is arguably number two, and Alexandria is number three. Unless you're from Alexandria, and then Alexandria is number two, and Antioch is number three. But you get the idea. So it's a very important uh, diocese, so to speak, Alexandria is. and plays a very important role in, uh, in early church history. Another example would be St. James important um, apostle. He goes to Spain, to Compostello, tiny little city, it's not much at all. And so as a result of that, Compostello does not become an important diocese. <clears throat> Take a look at Rome. Peter goes to Rome. Paul goes to Rome. Rome is the capital of the Roman Empire. So you've got the supreme, the ultimate, in each one of those. And that's why Rome is so important to the the Catholic Church. And ultimately there's going to be this great contest that's going to go on three, for 300 years between the Roman Empire on the one hand and the Catholic Church on the other. And in the end the Catholic Church is going to win and just to, you know, it's one of these victory laps kind of a thing. It's, you know, you, uh, it, it, uh, it's like taking a scalp and, um, and so we adopt the name itself and we become the Roman Catholic Church. Talk about rubbing it in, right? So that's, uh, that's the first uh, handout. The other one probably is even more important. And here you have uh, examples of the primacy of Peter, uh, Peter as the primus, 
as the number one. Uh, first of all, we always go back to uh, Matthew 16, verses 18 to 19. Who do people say that I am? Peter is the one who answers, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And then Christ then says back to him, Jesus says back to him, Thou art Peter. That's not his name. His name is Simon. His nickname is Peter. Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. He's punning. Peter, you know, Peter and Cephas means rock. And, uh, and so he's, he's punning on that. But um, the other thing, too, that's important to know is that if you go back to the Greek or even to the Vulgate Latin, and if you, if you know your, um, your pronouns, he's using the, uh, first, the, the second person singular here. He's not using the second person plural. So he's not saying y'all. He's saying you, you specifically. So that's Matthew 16. Another is John 21, uh, verses um, uh, 15 to 17. And that's important to also remember. That's at the Sea of Tiberias. It's after the resurrection. And, um, and, and Peter and his, and his, uh, his uh, companions have gone back to fishing. And uh, remember that uh, John sees Jesus on the shore, recognizes him, <clears throat> and that, um, uh, that uh, they come ashore then. I think we talked a little bit about that before, the number of fish. Didn't we? Yeah, okay. And, uh, and, and, so, and then also uh, the fact that Jesus asks uh, Peter tw three times, uh, do you love me? And I think we talked about the difference between phileo and agapao. Didn't, didn't we last class? Didn't, oh, no? Okay. Okay, well, let's do that right now. I think it's, it's, it's important. Um, there are three, at least three, different ways of saying love in Greek. And uh, the one that, um, that we're not going to use is uh, eros. Okay. Uh, the other love is that of phileo. <coughs> Phileo means to like something a lot. I, I phileo a, um, a ice cream. I, I, if, I like, um, if I like horses, my name might be Philip. Uh, phileo hippos, right? And, and so that's a, that's a kind of a, um, a, a very close um, uh, affection. But it's not as strong as agapao. And agapao, we get the word agape from that, is a total fiduciary loving relationship. I would give my life for you. And so when Peter is first asked, uh, do you love me? In English, it just it, it kind of falls flat. It's like, do you love me? Yes, I love you. Do you love me? Yes, I love you. Do you love me? Yes, I love you. And, and, and it goes with that. But if you looked at the Greek, it, it really is very powerful. Because Jesus is saying to um, to, fill, uh, to um um, Peter, agapao me, do, do you love me? That's, that's that fiduciary, I, I, would you give your life for me? And Peter responds, phileote, of course I like you. Jesus asks a second time, agapao me? And Peter then responds back, phileote. And finally, the last time around, when Jesus asks, do you love me, he actually says, Phileome, and Peter says phileote, but it's, it's, it's weak, and he's saddened by that. But I think there's an important lesson by that, too, is that 
Christ is not going to ask more out of us than what we can give. And at that particular moment, that's all that, uh, that Peter could give. Okay? Um, but the point of the matter is that what does he say after each time when he asks, do, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Tend my sheep. And again, he's speaking first person singular to this. Now, there's another uh, example, too, and that's um, John, the 20th chapter. And Jesus has come back. It's after the, um, the, the resurrection. He appears at the cenacle with, uh, with the, um, the disciples. And then at that time, he says to them that he gives them the power to forgive sins. That's a divine power. Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus, being God, can forgive sins, but he also goes ahead and passes that on. But in this particular case, it's not specifically to Peter. It's to the entire college of, of apostles. Yeah. Got it so far? Okay. Here's another interesting thing. Go through the New Testament, and every time they list the apostles, Peter is always named first. Always named first. That might be a coincidence, but I don't know. Then beyond that, you also have Ignatius of Antioch. Ignatius of Antioch, remember, uh, he writes seven letters as he's going to Rome to be executed. And in each of those letters, in those various letters, he points out that, um, that the, the symbol of unity in any local church is the bishop. Everyone else is, is, is attached to the bishop. And then the implication is that, that the bishops then are attached to the primus, to, to Peter. Uh, he himself is the successor of St. Peter. St. Peter was the first bishop of Antioch before he went to Rome. So there's that very close relationship there. We're going to see then also tonight Irenaeus of Lyon. All of his actions are going to show deference to the Bishop of Rome. And then uh, beyond that, we can, uh, we've already talked, I think, a little bit about Clement of Rome. And remember that uh, there's a problem in Corinth, and he writes a letter, a very uh, authoritative letter, to the church in Corinth and tells them to get their act together. What right does he have to do that? He's not Bishop of Corinth, but he's implying that he's a bishop of, of the whole church. A um, couple others, Pope Sylvester I, a uh, good example there. When Constantine finally conquers Rome, <clears throat> he then turns around and he invests Sylvester I, the Pope, who had been an outlaw until then, he invests him with the Lateran uh, Palace. And it's very obvious that uh, the Sylvester has a, a very uh, important empire-wide, church-wide role. Uh, same thing for Julius II, uh, Julius I, rather. You also have the, the Council of, of uh, Sardica, um, which speaks about the primacy of Peter. Um, you also have the First Council of Constantinople, um, in which um, the Council Fathers are gathered at Constantinople. It's now the capital of the empire. And they then turn around to the Pope at the time, Damasus, and basically say, we recognize your primacy. Um, and Damasus makes sure that he understands that correctly, that the Council is not giving primacy to Damasus. They're recognizing that he has it. And then finally, you, you take uh, Pope Innocent II, especially Leo, this, I'm sorry, uh, Innocent I. 
Leo the first. Um, what's he famous for? Do you remember? Was he the one who commits the crime to not a sacrifice? Yes. Yes. So, I mean, he goes out with, with no weapons, nothing, and he takes on Attila the Hun. And in one meeting, Attila turns around and decides to go sack something else, not Rome. You know, so just the, the authority that these, uh, these men uh, are carrying with them. Okay. So then finally, the, uh, the third handout, um, <clears throat> just a little bit about the overall <clears throat> preaching of the, um, of the uh, Christian message itself. Um, first of all, it is a radical spiritual liberation Unlike some of these other cults that we talked about a little bit, we talked about uh, the cult of Mithra, uh, the other cult of the, the bull's blood, things of that nature. Um, this is a spiritual um, liberation. It also speaks about the dignity of all human beings, that everybody is dignified. You have to understand that at the time of the Roman Empire, <clears throat> if you were not a Roman, you had no dignity. If you were a Roman, but you were a plebeian rather than a patrician, you didn't have much dignity. And, and it really was a, it was a very small group of people who really held all the power and all the dignity in Rome. And it was basically the Senate, the senators and, and the emperors and, 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 and the generals. And outside of that, you really didn't count for much. You were only important insofar as you were a member of a, of a, a, a family, for instance. And, and Christianity is teaching quite the opposite, that everyone is endowed with this, this dignity, that every human being is made in the image and likeness of God. And, and that is a radical idea. And it basically tells us that when you die and when the emperor dies, there's no difference. And the emperor is going to have to understand that also. It's one of the reasons why you have a, a, a severe decline in the last days of the Roman Empire, after, the, uh, after Constantine legitimizes Christianity and Christianity starts getting some real clout and influence, <clears throat> you have a decline in slavery and you also have a decline in, in gladiatorial games. At, at one point, Pope Leo the, the first tried to outlaw Christians going to um, uh, chariot races. And uh, it just, that went nowhere. I mean, they really like their, their sports, but they were willing to give up the blood sports that had been part and parcel of the Roman Empire uh, for so many centuries. There's a sense of the community of all believers, of a sense of belonging. Didn't make any difference who you were, whether you served at the court or whether you uh, were a, a menial um, uh, uh, farmer or, or whatever. Um, you, you all shared in that sense of community. Remember that even poor people were going to these, these big mansions to celebrate mass on Sundays. Okay. So there's a, there's a sense of that again, that, that radical equality. Um, they considered themselves to be fellow travelers um, as Peregrini in, in the world. Uh, not belonging to the world, but working, walking through the world instead. And I'll, I'll leave you with this then too. This is a quote from the um, Catechism of the Catholic Church and said this, thus Christianity, 
The religion of Jesus Christ is made visible by the church. The church of Christ subsists in the Catholic church. It doesn't say that if you're not Catholic, you're not part of the church of Christ. It says just the opposite. It says that the reason why the church of Christ is visible is because of the Catholic church. The Catholic church gave us the Bible. We wouldn't have a Bible without the, without the Catholic Church. <clears throat> that Bible was preserved over the centuries and protected over the centuries by the Catholic Church. So you can't have Christianity without the Catholic Church, but Christianity is bigger than the Catholic Church, as we're going to see a little bit later on in some of the controversies, not so much in Irenaeus, but uh, with especially St. Cyprian and how that plays out for us today. Okay, let's go ahead and start getting into uh, Irenaeus of Lyon. One of the best sources on these early church fathers is a man by the name of Johannes Quaestin. He wrote a four-volume work. Unfortunately, he died before he could finish the last volume. And his students put the last volume together for him. It's simply called Petrology. And uh, if you want to know everything about the early church fathers, that's the one to go to. But it's four volumes. He says this. He says, the teaching of the apostles continues to live on unaltered. That's important, unaltered. This tradition is the source and the norm of the faith. It is the canon of truth. And so, looking at Irenaeus of Lyon, his, his teacher was Polycarp of Smyrna. He was from Asia Minor originally and moved to France. But his teacher is Polycarp of Smyrna. Polycarp was a student of St. John the Evangelist who sat at the side of Jesus himself. So there's a direct line between um, these individuals. He's born in Asia, Asia Minor, the present-day Turkey. <clears throat> he speaks Greek. There was a significant community of um, Greek-speaking people from, the, from uh, Asia Minor that had moved um, to the center of France um, along the, the, Rhone, the upper Rhone River. And it, it tells us a couple things. So one of the things it tells us is that during the Roman Empire, there was a lot more movement than what you would expect. Uh, pe people moved around quite a, quite a bit. And so he's, he's one of those. He moves to south central Gaul. Uh, the town itself is, is called uh, Lugdunum. Today it's called Lyon. He's one of those transplants that, um, that is very critical of his new homeland. Uh, he cannot understand why the people in central Gaul do not speak Greek. <laughs> Just, I, I traveled with some people, this is years ago, uh, in, in Germany and Austria. And there was one older woman that was just very upset that she um, wasn't able, that people around her weren't speaking English. You know, she says, well, why not? You know, you're in their country, you know. And, and he was sort of in that same boat. Um, he, he said the problem with the people that lived in, in Lyon or Lugonum is that wherever they walked around and they were talking to each other, it sounded like blah, 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 blah. And, you know, it's like, why can't they speak Greek? Um, the church itself 
it's a, it's a difficult time because you, you know sometimes you've got emperors where the the the, the uh, program is don't ask don't tell. The other times when they go out of their way to persecute you, and so he was in Lyon at a time when it was sort of like don't ask don't tell. It was a peaceful coexistence, and the church there, uh, because they're speaking Greek and they're reading things that are being written in Greek, they know that over in Asia Minor there is a man by the name of Montanus. Now you might remember that, that he influenced Tertullian and eventually took Tertullian out of the, out of the church into schism. And Montanus was a, um, uh, he was a heretic as well as a schismatic. He basically taught that the God of the Old Testament was a bad God and that the God of the New Testament is a good God. They were like two, two faces of God or two different gods and that um, uh, that you had to get rid of the, the Old Testament entirely. And he had some other really weird ideas also. So anyway, the, 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 the people in Lyon, the, the Christians in Lyon, think to themselves, we need to go and report this guy to the Pope. And so they send Irenaeus on this mission. He goes down to Pope Lutherius and he presents the heresy of Montanism now why would he do that? Why would he go to the Bishop of Rome unless the Bishop of Rome had some kind of primus authority, right? So there he goes, he goes there, and then while he's there, a persecution breaks out in Lyon as well as another village not too far away, Vienne. And it's a terrible persecution. The Christians are rounded up and they're brought to a, an amphitheater. And it, Interestingly enough, that, that amphitheater is still there today. It, it's now it's a soccer field. But at the time, it was uh, this amphitheater where they had games, blood games, but now the blood games were going to be done on, on Christians. And so they brought in these Christians. One of those they brought in was a, lay, uh, a slave by the name of Blendina. And we know about her through martyrology. Uh, the, um, uh, the the, the uh, writings that were written down ab about her. <coughs> she was brought in, she was crucified. Now she would have been crucified not with nails but with, uh, with ropes. She's crucified. You know, crucifixion is basically a very slow suffocation because you're hanging like there, your body weight is pulling you down and you, you, you can't breathe. And so you've got to literally pull yourself up in order to breathe and then it gets to be too much and you go back down again. And after you do this for a while, then your muscles start spasming and eventually you just give up. So in her case, she was, she was crucified and then, that's not enough, then they, they came and, and they, they took clubs and began beating on her, breaking her bones. And then on top of that, they flayed her now how that's done is, is, you, is you take a, a, a seashell and, and you, you chop off the, the ends of the seashell so it's very sharp. And then you take that on, on the person's skin and you literally pull the up, outer layers of skin off of them. So she went through an enormous amount of, um, of, of pain and then finally at one point they then sent in some wild beasts to, um, to devour her while she was still alive and uh, the, be the beast decided they didn't want to eat her. 
and they went and laid down someplace. And with that then, they, they came, put kindling wood around her and burnt her alive. All that for being a, a Christian. In order to have other, other kinds of sport, one of the other things they did was they introduced this thing called the iron chair. It's, it's over on the right there. Basically, they, they put you into this chair. It's got spikes on it, so it doesn't feel good to begin with. And then underneath, they light a charcoal fire. And they said all throughout the city of Lyon, and it's a relatively small city, out of that amphitheater, you could hear Christians cry out as, as you smelt the, the burning flesh, as you heard the, the, the cries, Christians crying out, Cristiano sum, I am a Christian. That the, the last words they spoke before they died, was, I am a Christian. And Irenaeus missed all of that. He was down in Rome. And by the time he got back to uh, Lyon, the persecutions were finished. They had as much bloodlust as they wanted. And he then spent time rebuilding the church. But one of the things he's going to do, too, that's very important, is that he is going to study all of these, um, these heresies. And he's going to write a book about the heresies themselves. So the book is entitled Adversus Heresesis, and in English the, the subtitle is The Deten Detection and Overthrow of the Pretended but False Gnosis, the False Knowledge. And there, these, here's a whole series of, um, of heretics that are floating around in the third generation of, of the Christian church. They're claiming to be Christian, but they've rejected the Bible. They rejected the traditions of the church. They reject the hierarchy of the church. And they're simply setting up their own churches. So you can see there's a whole bunch of them there. The interesting thing about this, Adversus Herseus, is that Irenaeus did such a good job at describing the heresy. He wanted to give the heresy as, as honest, a, a hearing as possible. And much that we know about these heresies, we've learned through him. And then what he does is he goes through the heresy, presents it first, the best foot forward, and then turns around and one by one destroys their argument. Now, um, should mention to you that in 1945, at the end of the Second World War, there were some people rooting around up in Upper Egypt and they came across this, this whole big bunch of, um, of these heresies. And they were, they were just piled together. And uh, ever since then, they've been called the Nag Hammadi Library. Chances are it was actually a dump. Uh, they were actually throwing this stuff away. If you ever read any of this stuff, any of, any of this, these works, it's Dan Brown all over again. You know, it's the Da Vinci Code. And if you believe the Da Vinci Code, let me sit you down sometime and tell you about it. <laughs> but that's basically the stuff that uh, the grist out of that mill. 
Koyston says this, Irenaeus knows how to give a simple, clear, and convincing description of the doctrines of the church. His work remains, therefore, of the greatest importance for the knowledge of the Gnostic system and the theology of the early church. So around this time also, one of his um, works was discovered. We've known about it for centuries, but uh, never had a full copy of it. We have a couple pages here, a couple pages there. And in 1904, it was discovered in an Armenian text. It was written in Armenian. And, uh, I, well, the text was Armenian. Uh, it was written in Greek originally. And it's, um, the title of it is Demonstrations of Apostolic Teaching. We knew this thing existed because the historian uh, Eusebius had quoted from it. Also, the theologians um, Hippolytus and Epiphanius had quoted from it, but we didn't have it its, itself until um, Harrison Ford came around and, and, and found it with the Lost Ark. So what are the things, what are some of the, the Catholic teachings that uh, Irenaeus is, is, uh, is handing on to us? Remember, this is stuff that he learned from Polycarp, who learned it from St. John, who learned it from Jesus himself. So there's a pedigree there. Of creation, he says this, the quote, let us make man in our image and likeness. The Holy Spirit fills the prophets with charism to serve the mission of the Logos, who is sent on behalf of the Father. This is the economy of salvation. Do you see then the Father, the Son, who is the Logos, and the Spirit? And the Spirit is working through the prophets, the Old Testament prophets, in order to prepare Israel for the coming of the Messiah, the Logos. And he says this is the economy of salvation. Have you heard that term before, the economy of salvation? Okay. You know, the term itself, is, it has nothing to do with finances, right? It, it's, it's a Greek term, economia. It literally means a household. And so the household of salvation is the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the Trinity. And Origin of Alexandria speaks about our destiny as being uh, invited into that household. That's what the beatific vision is all about. That's what heaven is all about. Irenaeus also has this, what he refers to as the theory of capitulation. Christ renews, restores, reorganizes creation all over again. So creation is a mess after the, the sin of Adam and Eve. And it's going to take all this time to prepare Israel so that it becomes the, the worthy receptacle of the Logos, Christ. And he's then going to recapitulate all of creation over again, making creation new again. In the third chapter of Adversus Heresaeus, says this, when he became incarnate and was made man, he recapitulated in himself the long history of man, summing up and giving us salvation in order that we might receive again in Christ Jesus what was lost in Adam, that is, the image and likeness of God. 
about Mary. Um, he refers to Mary as the Advocata Eve. And he says this, and if the farmer Eve, the farmer, I added Eve on that. If the farmer did disobey God, yet the latter was persuaded to be obedient to God in order that the Virgin Mary may become the advocate of the Virgin Eve, and thus in the human race fell into bondage, thus as the human race fell into bondage to death by means of a virgin, so it was rescued by a virgin. He also implies the Immaculate Conception. Now this is a doctrine that is only promulgated in the 1850s. Now Pope Pius IX promulgates this. But even before that, uh, as, as certainly as early as, um, as Irenaeus, you have this idea that Mary is, is pure and a virgin from the beginning, immaculately conceived. It says this, in the birth of Christ, the pure one opening purely that pure womb which regenerates men unto God. So the word pure is used three times in that one sentence. What about the Eucharist? Uh, he says here then, when therefore the mingling cup and the manufactured bread receives the word of God, and there's the, the Greek that he uses there, epidextrae ton logos to theo so there's the logon there and the Eucharist becomes the blood and the body of Christ from which things the substance of our flesh is increased and supported how can they affirm that the flesh is incapable of receiving the gift of God so very clearly here he's stating the same thing that uh, Ignatius of Antioch had stated before him and, uh, and, and has been, has been and, and others besides have, have done that, is that once you take the, um, the bread and the, and the wine and it's consecrated, it becomes the physical presence of, um, of Christ. And then, once again, another uh, indication of the uh, primacy of Peter. He writes this, and he says, For which this church becomes of its more effective leadership, all churches must agree, that is to say, the faithful of all places, because in it the apostolic tradition has always been preserved by the faithful of all places. And the term that's used there now, and, and remember that he's writing in Greek, but we don't have the Greek letter that he wrote. We, what we do is, we, we do have is uh, the translation into Latin. And so the term that he uses there, the more effective leadership, on account of the, or because of uh, the more effective leadership, is propter potentium principalitatem. It translates as, the, as because of the more effective leadership. And why is it more effective? It's more effective because the apostolic tradition has been preserved there and has never been altered. Every other church, uh, the early the great churches, every other church 
found itself wallowing in one heresy or another at one time or another. The church in Alexandria was taken over by the Arianists. Uh, the church in Antioch, you had a whole other group of, um, of heretics that, that had that for a while. Uh, the church in Constantinople, uh, you had heresies floating around there too. It's only in Rome that you have the apostolic tradition that was brought to Rome by Peter and Paul and preserved by Mark and then remained pope after pope after pope uh, loyal to the apostolic tradition. And this is what Irenaeus is talking about. This is again the reason why he went to Rome in order to warn the pope about this heresy over in Asia Minor. Because he knew that because of the more effective leadership that the pope would be able to do something about this. So again, when we started looking at the, uh, the proof of uh, apostolic primacy, of, of papal primacy, uh, we, we've got uh, Irenaeus going to Rome because of Marcionism, but even before that, a generation before that, there was a conflict um, in which the, um, in, in the East, and we'll talk a little bit about this, the East celebrated Easter at a different time than the West. So in the East, they celebrated Easter at one time, and in the West, they celebrated at a different time, and we'll talk about that, how that comes about a little bit later on. But um, the important thing is that it, as the two disagreed with each other, who went which way? The Pope stayed in Rome. I think his name was Anacletus, and Polycarp left Asia Minor and went to Rome in order to discuss the Easter, the, the day of Easter with, uh, with the Pope. In the end, they agreed to disagree. And later on, we're going to see that uh, Pope Victor I wanted the uniformity of the Easter celebration. In the, in the end, <clears throat> he's persuaded to back off by Irenaeus himself who writes to the Pope and says this, oh yeah, there's Anacletus. He said, they, Pope Anacletus and St. Polycarp, parted from each other in peace and kept peace in the church, both for those who observe and those who did not observe. So in the East, the uh, Easter is celebrated according to the Jewish holiday on the 14th day of the month of Nisan. And in the East, they still celebrate that, uh, that same day. In the West, we celebrate the first Sunday after the first full moon after the spring equinox. Something else about the uh, uh, Pope Victor I. Um, he is the, the Pope in Rome at the time of the Emperor uh, Commodus and uh, Commodus. And this is, this is pretty important for us to see as an insight into how far Christians got into the, uh, the imperial administration. So here's a situation in which Christians were being enslaved when they were caught. They were not being killed, they were being enslaved. They were being sent to Sardinia, the island of Sardinia in the Mediterranean Sea. There's salt mines there. And they were basically sentenced to life in prison on a salt, uh, working in salt mines. Okay. At the same time, the emperor has a friend, Carpophorus. And Carpophorus had a slave by the name of Callistus. 
And we're not exactly sure what happened. Remember that slaves were, we can't, we can't talk about American slavery and Roman slavery in, in the same equation. Uh, many of these slaves were, they were bonded to a family, but at the same time, many of them were, were tutors. Um, they were, in, in some cases, the, um, uh, the accountants for the family. Uh, they could have been the econome, uh, overseeing the, uh, the kitchen, that kind of stuff. Uh, so th in many cases, they had considerable weight and authority. And it seems as though Callistus did too. And we don't know exactly what this was all about, but it had something to do with money. And all we know is that Callistus uh, was going to get arrested. And he snuck out of Rome. And he gets down to the port of Ostia. And, and got on a ship. And the intention was for him to escape to Spain. And so as the ship is taking off, the Roman police arrive, and they've got smaller, faster boats. And they row up to the boat that, or the ship that he, he's on. And as they're pulling into one side of the boat, and they, they're, they're coming on board, um, Callistus jumps in the sea on the other side. And it didn't take much for the police to simply come around to the other side, grab him out of the water, and then bring him back to Rome for trial. And the next thing you know, uh, he's, um, he's now being sent to Sardinia to um, uh, work in the salt mines. Now, while all that's happening, Victor is trying to find a way in order to free the Christians who are enslaved in the salt mines in Sardinia. <clears throat> and it just so happens that he has a contact in the imperial court itself. And it's a woman by the name of Marcia. And um, Marcia is, a, let's say, a friend of the emperor. It's a little more intense than that, but we'll let it go at that. And so she goes to the emperor and succeeds in getting him to free all the slaves on um, Sardinia. So word goes out to Sardinia, to the governor. The governor then takes all the Christians, they puts them on a boat to send them back to Rome. And who arrives in Sardinia just as the Christians are leaving? None other than Callistus, who ends up being the only Christian slave because he wasn't covered under Commodus' um, um, freedom. He then turns around and persuades, he's a very persuasive character evidently, persuades the jailers to free him. He gets back to Rome, the Pope dies, and he's elected Pope. One of the first things he does, is, I guess he cleared his name, we don't know what happened with the financial deals, but, but somehow he cleared his name. And one of the first things he does is he offers um, to forgive sins, and including the sins, uh, sin of adultery. And for this, both Hippolytus, who we'll be looking at, or we did look at and, and then Tertullian came to hate him. And ultimately, he himself is martyred around 220 AD, 222 AD. So it gives us a little insight into um, to, um, 
Irenaeus of Lyon, the relationship with, the, uh, with, with Rome in particular, and some of the things that are going around, going on in, in Rome itself. Any questions on uh, Irenaeus? Yeah. Well, he's going to be martyred for his beliefs. Uh, th these persecutions that take place, a lot of it depends on who the emperor is. And af after Commodus dies, the next emperor coming in, I don't remember who it is offhand, is not friendly to Christians. And so you, you, you've got a, a constant going back and forth kind of a thing. Um, it's the persecutions in the early church up until the pers persecution of Decius, which only lasted two years, and then the persecution of Diocletian. Those two were really big empire-wide persecutions. The other persecutions that went on were little things that popped up every once in a while. Um, you know, you've got a governor general in, uh, in Asia Minor who all of a sudden decides he doesn't like Christians and he hunts down Polycarp and drags him back to, to Smyrna and he goes to this trial show trial and then he's he's offered his freedom you know the the, the um, proconsul says um, I'll, I'll let you free all you have to do is deny Christ and Polycarp says are you kidding I'm 85 years old you know I don't have much longer to live and the proconsul said yeah you're right on that one and he died the next day um, that's a real small item what happened in in, uh, in in Lyon happened in Lyon, but it didn't happen in other parts of Gaul, you know? So it, it's a very strange kind of a thing. Until you get to Decius and, and his persecution, uh, you don't have a, a, I mean, there's, there's always some place you could run. Yeah. Okay, and anything else on Irenaeus or Lyon? Okay. Let's go ahead and head on to the next one then. Okay, this is Hippolytus. He is a, uh, a Roman priest, and as I mentioned in the last section, he ends up being an enemy of, of Callistus, and um, he ends up leaving the church, getting himself elected pope, but as an anti-pope, and um, his writings become extremely important to us to under for us to understand what the church was doing and how it was operating in, in these days. Up until him, we really don't have a set of rubrics as to exactly how mass is, is conducted and uh, other things along those lines. Hippolytus gives us that, uh, but sort of like by mistake, by accident. So this is a story of two priests, a deacon and a pope and about the priest, one priest who becomes an anti-pope and then later on becomes a martyr saint. The pope involved in this is Zephanerus. Uh, the deacon is Callistus, we've already seen him, and one of the priests is Hippolytus. The other priest is Sibelius, he's a Roman priest, and he was asked to explain the Trinity that's usually not a good thing to try to do. And as a result of this, Sibelius, or it becomes Sibelianism, it's also known as Patripassianism, 
and it's also called modalism. It's the same heresy, three different names. Basically, Sibelius said this, that there is, that, the, that, the, that God is one. There's one God. But he, he plays three different roles, three different parts. In other words, three different modes, and that's where we get the word modalism is from. And so at one time, God plays the role of a creator. That's the Father. And then God comes back and plays the role of the Redeemer. That's the Son. And then God plays the role of the Sanctifier. And he plays the, uh, the Spirit. Let me give you an example of this. Some years back, a long time ago, there was a movie. It was a spoof. It was a comedy called The Mouse That Roared. And it had to do with a tiny little country nestled between France and Spain uh, called Grand Fenwick. And, and the storyline is that, um, that during the Hundred Years' War, a group of English soldiers had gotten stuck in the Pyrenees Mountains, and they farmed together this little duchy. And neither France nor Spain ousted them. And so they've been there for centuries, ever since the, the uh, Hundred Years' War. And they're famous for um, their grapes and making wine. And the story goes that, um, that California has just taken off producing lots of wine. And as a result of that, the, 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 the price of wine worldwide has dropped. And now Grand Fenwick is in really bad shape. And they need some way to make some money. And so Peter Sellers plays three roles in this, uh, in this movie. And for one thing, down at the bottom, he's the chancellor of the... Um, uh, of, of, of Grand Fenwick, the duchy, he comes up with this idea that if they went to war with the United States, that when they, defeated, when they were defeated by the United States, they could then apply for martial aid. I mean, after all, Germany was rebuilt with martial funds, right? Japan was built with martial funds. So Italy was built with martial funds. So why not go ahead and declare war on the United States, lose the war, and then they get free money from the United States? Great idea. So then what they did was they, he persuades the, the Duchess, who is played by Peter Sellers, okay, and he persuades her to, to declare war on the United States. So then she turns around and she assigns the general of the um, Duchy army a uh, man by the name of Tully, um, who, Tully Bascom, who is played by Peter Sellers. And the long and short of the story is that Peter Sellers then goes ahead and rents a small ship, puts his army of about 20 men, and they're all dressed up in medieval uniforms because they haven't changed since 100 years of war. And, and they all take off, and they, they go across the Atlantic, and they attack the city of New York and they win. Now, how it happens is this. New York City is going through a, um, a, um, a drill, a, a, um, a nuclear attack drill. And everybody in the city is down underneath in, in the fallout shelters. So when they come into the city, the city's, nobody's there. And they're looking around, and they're trying to find somebody to surrender to. 
and they can't find anybody. And they go over to a university, and when they go into this university, there's a scientist who's so involved in his project, he and his daughter, that they don't hear the sirens. So they're the only ones that are above ground. And, and Tully comes into the, this, this laboratory, and he says he tries to surrender to this guy. And the guy won't, you know, the scientist won't take his surrender. And, and instead, he says, well, what are you working on? And he says, I'm working on this little tiny nuclear bomb. It's more powerful than all the other bombs put together. And so Tully decides, oh, let's win the war instead. And so he kidnaps the scientist and his daughter and the bomb, and they bring it back to Grand Fenwick. And the long and short of it is there's this negotiations. The Soviets come in. They want to try to buy the bomb off Grand Fenwick. The Americans want to buy the bomb. The British come in. The French, everybody's vying for it. And in the end of, of the film, um, all the various, this, this comes right in the middle of the Cold War, by the way. At the end of the film, everybody ends up agreeing with each other, and we got world peace. You know, so it, it, it's a cute little comedy. The reason I bring this up is because Peter Sellers is only one person, right? But he plays three different roles. He's the Duchess, he's the Prime Minister, he's the General of the Army. And so Sibelius is describing, it, it's a very simple way to describe the Trinity. The Trinity is one person and he plays three different roles. There's a problem with all of that though. Hippolytus is a, is a priest. He, he's the other priest in Rome. <clears throat> and he points out that the father and the son are separate. They're not the same. Go back to the, um, uh, the um, agony in the garden. And Jesus says, he's praying to the father, let this cup pass. But it's not my will, but thy will be done. Two, there, there are two different people there. That's very clear. And so Hippolytus points this out. And he points out that the term itself, prosopa, in Greek it means persons. An individual person as distinct from another. Now, Callistos. Remember, he's, he's the deacon who eventually becomes the pope. He attacks Hippolytus and says, you're a ditheist. You believe in two gods, the father god and the son god. And Hippolytus reacts back to Callistus and basically says, you're a terrible person. You defrauded others, you escaped, you were captured, you were sent to prison. Why should anyone listen to you? There's a wonderful Latin term for that. Ad hominem. <laughs> but it seemed to work for at least some people. As I say, Callistus is then elected pope. Um, that's after Pope uh, Zephyrinus dies. It's the priests and the deacons of Rome who elect Callistus. Remember that at this time, there are basically two ways to elect your bishop. And one is for the the priests of, the, of that diocese, that local church, gather together at the death of the other bishop and they elect someone. There's another way, and that's popular acclamation. That is to say the people of the diocese come together and they acclaim one individual. Uh, that's how Ambrose became bishop of Milan.
Uh, that's how Cyprian becomes Bishop of Carthage. But the nor normal way is for the priests to, um, uh, to elect their next bishop. And of course the most important bishop is going to be the, uh, the Bishop of Rome. Okay. So Callistus then, it becomes Pope and he preaches a sermon and he says that the church is like Noah's Ark. It's full of unclean as well as clean. Now you go back to the Old Testament and you think about all the different animals coming onto the, uh, the ark. And remember that by Mosaic law, some of those animals getting onto the ark were unclean. I mean, otherwise we wouldn't have any pigs around anymore and you know, some of the other things. And so Calistus is arguing that, that, um, that because on the ark, both clean and unclean animals were admitted, so it is with the church. And the church has saints and it has sinners. And we just have to recognize that and work with that. Hippolytus reacts against that. Tertullian reacts against that. Remember, Tertullian has left Rome by now. He's gone to the east. He's gone off the deep end. And he's writing really vicious stuff. And he attacks the, the pope on this. He says, you can't forgive sins. Who do you think you are? Hippolytus also condemns this. And they're arguing that sins are forgiven only once, and that's at your baptism. If you believe that, then you better hope to live long enough, just long enough, to be baptized right before you die. You, know, you get a get out of hell free card that way, but otherwise, you're in bad shape. So Hippolytus then forms his own church, and guess what? He's elected pope. This is the first anti-pope in history. Won't be the last one. Now, Hippolytus knows that he doesn't have a lot of following. And he knows that if he's going to, that his church is going to survive him, he's got to write down the books. He's got to write down the way in which you say mass, the way in which you baptize, you, you've got to be able to do all of that uh, because he doesn't have a lot of clergy with him so there's not a lot of, of um, institutional memory and, and this is his gift to us is because we, do, we have the apostolic traditions the, the book that he wrote the apostolic traditions so he says this, and this he writes this in 215 and he says now at the preface before you go into the canon of the mass there's a dialogue that happens and the bishop says, the Lord be with you. And the response from the community is, and with your spirit. And the bishop says, lift up your hearts. And everyone says, we lift them up to the Lord. And the bishop says, let us give thanks to the Lord. And everyone responds, it is proper and right. Now take a look at the Novus Ordo, the, the, the mass that we have today. And the preface begins, the Lord be with you and with your spirit. Lift up your heart. We lift them up to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord, our God. It is right and just. Now, at the time of the Second Vatican Council, there were a lot of church fathers, they're periti, they're, they're experts, and they were reading a lot of these early works. Uh, the the uh, Patrology, the Patristics, was a very big study. And 
you might go ahead and say, ah, that's where they got it. And they got it into the Novus Ordo. But if you go back to the old Latin Mass, before the um, Second Vatican Council, the very same dialogue takes place, but in Latin. Preface itself. This is Hippolytus saying this. The bishop will then say, We give you thanks, O God, through your beloved child, Jesus Christ, whom you have sent to us in these last days as Savior, Redeemer, and Messenger of your Consul. He is your word, inseparable from you, through whom you created all things, and in whom you are well pleased. From heaven you sent him into the womb of the Virgin, and once conceived within her, he was made flesh, and was shown to be your son, born of the Holy Spirit and the Virgin. Fulfilling your will and winning for you a holy people, he stretched out his hands as he suffered, that by his death he might, be, he might free those who believed in you. Now, that's Hippolytus, okay? Um, I, I have read an, uh, some of the other prefaces. Uh, there's one that comes out of Egypt. Um, and that, just to read that preface alone, it takes almost a half an hour. So this is definitely a, a, a cut-down version. Oh, today, this is what we read in the uh, second Eucharistic prayer. It is truly right and just, our duty and our salvation, always and everywhere to give you thanks. Father, most holy through your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, your word through whom you made all things, whom you sent as our Savior and Redeemer, incarnate by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin, fulfilling your will and gaining for you a holy people. He stretched out his hands as he endured his passion so as to break the bonds of death and manifest the resurrection. You can see the parallel. The consecration, and again, we're talking in terms of the consecration for uh, the second Eucharistic prayer as, as a, uh, in, in conjunction with the uh, Hippolytus uh, 215 AD. Hippolytus says, when he was betrayed to his willing death so that he might abolish death, break the bonds of the devil, trample hell underfoot, give light to the righteous, set a term of sentence, and manifest his resurrection. He took bread and giving thanks to you said, take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you. Second Eucharistic prayer. You are indeed holy, O Lord, the fount of all holiness. Make holy therefore these gifts we pray by sending down your spirit upon them like the dew fall, so that they may become for us the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. He joins his hands, that, that's what the, the priest does, he joins his hands and said, at, that, at the time he was betrayed and entered into, willingly into his passion, he took bread and giving thanks, broke it, and gave it to his disciples saying, take this all of you and eat of it, for this is my body which will be given up for you. That's the consecration of the, uh, of the bread. Hippolytus, 215, Novus Ordo, 2020. Consecration of the wine in the same way the cup saying this is my blood which is shed for you when you do this do so in memory of me the Novus Ordo in a similar way when supper was ended he took the chalice and holding it slightly but that's uh, that's the rubrics 
holding it slightly above the altar, continues. He took the chalice and once more giving thanks, he gave it to his disciples saying, take this all of you and drink, drink from it. For this is the chalice of my blood, the blood of the new and eternal covenant, which will be poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in memory of me. I want to point out two things. First of all, back here, Hippolytus says he took the bread and giving thanks said to you. The Novus Ordo adds one other uh, verb in there. He took the bread, giving thanks, broke it, two verbs, and gave it to his disciples. The three verbs there to take, break, and give thanks are code words for the Eucharist. And when you see the feeding of the 5,000, and when Jesus takes the loaves, he takes the loaves, he breaks the loaves, and gives thanks. Yeah. The other thing I want to point out to you is this. In the Novus Ordo, it says this. this. It says, in a similar way, when supper was ended, remember this is the Passover supper. There are four cups of wine involved in this Passover supper. The supper itself, the meal, happens after the third, um, uh, the third cup happens after the meal itself, okay? So it says, when supper was ended, so it's the third cup in the Passover Seder meal that Jesus is then consecrating. That cup is known in, in, um, among the Jews as the cup of redemption. So it was very, it was chosen very distinctly. The remainder of the Eucharistic prayer, uh, Hippolytus, and so keeping in mind the de his death and resurrection, we offer you the bread and the cup, giving thanks because you have counted us worthy to stand before you and serve you. We pray that you will, would send the, your Holy Spirit upon the offerings of your Holy Church, gathering them together Grant that all your saints who partake may be filled with the Holy Spirit and that their faith may be confirmed in truth, that we may praise you and give you glory through your child, Jesus, uh, Jesus Christ, through whom be glory and honor with the Holy Spirit in the Holy Church now and forever. Again, you can see the Trinity in each of these, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. The other thing, too, I want to uh, point out to you is that line it says we pray that you would send your Holy Spirit upon the offerings of your Holy Church that's called the Epiclesis and that's where the Epiclesis comes in Hippolytus's Mass if you go back the Novus Ordo Concentration of Bread says Make holy, therefore, these gifts, we pray, by sending down your spirit upon them like the dewfall. If you notice at Mass, that's the point at which the, the priest puts his hands over the, the gifts. That's the epiclesis. That's the calling down of the Holy Spirit. So it happens in both Hippolytus and in the Novus Ordo, but at a slightly different time. And then the Novus Ordo. Therefore, as we celebrate the memorial of his death and resurrection, we offer you, Lord, 
We offer you the bread of life and the chalice of salvation, giving thanks that you have held us worthy to be in your presence and minister to you. Humbly we pray that partaking of the body and blood of Christ, we may be gathered into one by the Holy Spirit. Remember, Lord, your church spread throughout the world and bring her to the fullness of charity together with our Pope, our Bishop, and all the clergy. So um, let's take a look at, uh, at baptisms. Is the best we could read this? <coughs> um, and again, this is what Hippolytus um, says happens at a baptism. And if you've ever been to a baptism to, uh, before, kind of think about what, um, what went on. It says, and then after these things, let him give him over to the presbyter who baptizes, and let the candidate stand in the water, water naked, a deacon going with them likewise. And when he who is being baptized goes down into the water, he who baptizes him, putting his hand on him, shall say thus, Dost thou believe in God, the Father Almighty? And he who is being baptized shall say, I believe. Then holding his hand placed on his head, he shall baptize him once. And then he shall say, Doth thou believe in Christ Jesus, the Son of God, who was born of the Holy Ghost of the Virgin Mary, and was crucified under Pontius Pilate, and was dead and buried, and rose again the third day, alive from the dead, and ascended into heaven, and sat at the right hand of the Father, and come, will come to judge the quick and the dead? Okay. Now, a couple little items here. Notice that there's water involved. And this is, this is baptism through immersion. Uh, typically in the West, we, we tended to baptize through sprinkling. But in the East, it was always done in immersion. And it was either done in a lake or a river. Rivers are better than lakes because rivers were uh, moving water. And, uh, and, and that's, the term for that was a living waters. Uh, lakes and cisterns were not. Uh, they were dead waters because they didn't move. So you, you would baptize through immersion. Now, there was a problem here because a lot of the people being baptized were women. And that didn't go over real well, you know, having naked women being baptized by, by men, by priests and deacons and bishops. So what they did in the East, because they were using uh, the immersion universally, is they put aside certain holy women who would then go into the water with the, the woman being baptized. And they would stand around her, and they would have like sheets or towels. And then the person baptizing, the priest, the deacon, or the, the bishop, would then like go like this and, and baptize them. And they would dunk them down and come up and dunk them down, come up, dunk them down, come up. And then the third time, and then the baptizer would walk away and the women would then take these towels and wrap them around the newly baptized woman. Now, that office of performing that service for the church was called what? Deaconesses, right. And so when you hear uh, the talk about um, women deacons, that's what we're talking about. Uh, they're trying, they're, there's, a, there's an attempt underway to take that definition, take the word, pull the definition out and put a new definition in 
Uh, well, it's very interesting to see how that's going to develop, but historically that's what actually happened. So it's just good for us to keep in mind. Okay, and then it goes on. And when he says, I believe he is baptized again and again, he shall say, Dost thou believe in the Holy Ghost and the Holy Church and the resurrection of the flesh? And he who is being baptized shall say accordingly, I believe. And so he is baptized a third time. You ever notice that a baptism? And, and if we're not doing immersion, uh, we're doing sprinkling. You take and you pour water. I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We do that today. You know? He who is being baptized shall say accordingly, I believe, and so he is baptized a third time. And afterward, when he has come up, he is anointed by the presbyter with the oil of thanksgiving. The presbyter saying, the next step connects both the baptism, baptismal tradition and the book of Acts. He says this, I anoint thee with holy oil in the name of Jesus Christ. And so each one after dying him, drying himself, is immediately clothed and is brought into the church. If you go to a baptism, all those elements are still there today. And we know now, this is the way people baptized, this is the way the Mass was said, because of Hippolytus' apostolic traditions. Can I ask a question? Yeah, sure. Um, I'm a convert, I guess I'm just really confused. He was like not, at the moment that he's writing these things, he was not accepted in the church because he was like, I'm out. Right. Right? Right. And then he was like, now I'm the Pope on this church over here. Yeah. But we still accept everything that he wrote, even though, I mean, because, he, why? I guess he's yeah, B because. That seems like controversial. Okay. Yeah, that, that's a good question. He left the Catholic Church because he disagreed with the church on the questions of the ability of the church to forgive sins. Right? Nothing that we've talked about here has to do with that, that particular um, heresy. Okay. And so all of what we have here is all rubrics and prayers and the kind of things that were being said in the Catholic Church as well as in the Hippolytan church. The major only difference between the church he had established was the, the forgiveness of sin. Yeah. Which I'm thankful that that's not right. Right, yeah. <laughs> we all are. <laughs> yeah. yeah. There are a lot of times, you know, when we start looking at saints, we're going to see this in Cyprian also. Not all the saints, in fact, almost all the saints, are not perfect all the time. I mean, even Peter denied Christ, right? That made him an, apost an apostasy. Um, we're going to say the same thing with Cyprian a little bit later on. The last person I would want to spend vacation with would be St. Jerome. He was a terrible man. You know, I mean, he was just, he had a, a, a mouth on him that was just really, really bad. Uh, he insulted some of the best people in the world. Um, but he's still a saint. So, that we all have the chance. <laughs> yeah. A, a lot of that uh, in what Hippolytus wrote seems very Trinitarian. So I guess I'm just wondering, is the current thinking that Deacon Callistus' accusations of Zytheism, were those off the mark? 
Yes. Yeah, definitely. And so um, you didn't need strong. You didn't need at home Obama attacks to defend yourself. <laughs> no, that's right. Yeah. 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 No. Um, it was uh, it was done uh, during the penitential seasons. It was done publicly. Uh, you literally went into the church. Uh, the bishop was there. It, 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 it was not no, deacons couldn't hear confession. Uh, priests couldn't hear confession. There was no confessional. It was the bishop was standing up in front of the congregation, and you came forward and you denounced yourself, which is very embarrassing. And then you're given a penance, and that might be fasting for 40 days, or it might be wearing a hair shirt, or whatever. Uh, the punishment fits the crime. Um, but uh, yeah, it's not until the Middle Ages that you're actually going to get to the point of private confessions and the confessional boxes that we have today. Really, you don't see those until around the 16th century. Yeah. Confession's there, but it was a very public act. Yeah. I'm sorry? Yeah, yeah, they tend to be. Why don't we stop here? We just have these others to go through, but there's quite a bit there. And um, we'll take that up with next week. And then we'll take a look also at Cyprian of Carthage, who's a very fascinating individual. And that whole thing about forgiveness of the sins is going to really get wrapped up in that because he's going to believe that you can even forgive very, very heinous sins. And there are a lot of people that said, no, you can't do that. So we'll uh, take a look at that next week. Okay, great. Thanks.